1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every
0: weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, we've had a lot of virus headlines uh, today that we're keeping a watch on, including uh, Boris uh, Johnson of the British Prime uh, British Prime Minister, of course, uh, announcing some new restrictions that are likely to last six months, telling people to work from home if possible. Uh, we also heard from Johns Hopkins today that the U.S. has exceeded 200,000 deaths from COVID-19. That's the most in the world. So there is a lot going on, certainly when it comes to COVID-19. Dr. Peter Alperin is a voice that we've reached out to before. He's vice president at Doximity. It's a professional medical network for physicians. He, too, is a doctor in private practice in San Francisco and that's where we find him on the phone on this Tuesday. Dr. Alperin, so nice to have you here with us. Um, I've got to ask you first though, you're in San Francisco. We know San Francisco between the fires, you know, coming on the heels of the the virus. um, It's really, really been tough. How are you? What's it like around you right now? Uh,
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, San Francisco is doing well. It's a resilient city and the, the citizens of San Francisco are really largely following all the recommendations made by the public health departments related to COVID, including masking and social distancing. So from that perspective, things are are good. And we've also been blessed with a little bit of clean air in the past uh, few days. So the the heavy murky dystopian uh, images Mm -hmm. of the week before last have largely gone away. The fires are still raging though. So, um, you know, we can't lose sight of that, but currently things looking pretty good.
0: But I feel like both of these together, between the virus and we, I think, have talked about this with you before. We've certainly talked about it with a lot of our medical guests, you know, the virus, um, you know, putting you know, your health, individual health front and center in terms of the healthier you are, maybe you had a better chance in terms of dealing with the virus. I think the same thing with the fires, right? You know, in terms of climate change and the impact and the environment it creates for for people, these are, you know, health problems. Um, You know, I do wonder, is there a big picture takeaway from this and your organization of conversations you guys are having about changes that really just need to be happening right now? Um, well, so um,
2: you know, on Doximity, we do have the um, the incredibly great vantage point of being able to see the conversations that uh, physicians are having, and I think that yes, I mean, the, the general conversation is that there's a lot of macro issues that need to be that need to be addressed that are beyond any one single physician or single person. But at the same time, um, there are some common sense steps that people can take from a health perspective, and so we are continuing to you know put those put those front and center.
0: Well, that's interesting, too. And I I, I was hoping to kind of tap into some of the conversations you guys are all having, because it is such a kind of an ideal platform, right, where there's things being passed back and forth. I mean, what would you like to see from whether it's local lawmakers, federal lawmakers, to kind of tackle some of these issues?
2: Well, I think um, some of the things that we'd like to see, certainly, um, is really just a, a, a a more rapid and and logical and comprehensive adoption of of technology. As we've, we've talked about, you know, we recently had a a report the proximity to 2020 state of telemedicine report. And it found that, you know, telemedicine, for instance, as a solution to be able to help, you know, more people see their physicians more, uh, more easily, um, particularly those with chronic illnesses is certainly something that we can, that we've seen discussed and certainly something that we are, um, you know, are are certainly uh, in a position to to help affect. And then we're also seeing, you know, a lot of conversations around just, you know, more comprehensive and logical steps, you know, from a scientific perspective on how to just keep things focused on what the science is telling us to do um, and trying to, you know, block out some of the other noise.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was looking at that report. You guys did it, I believe, in 2019, uh, and it was really all about telemedicine, which is kind of interesting to see how it feels like finally, because of the pandemic, because people didn't have a choice to go in and see their doctors, that telemedicine has taken off. Um, What have you seen firsthand? Remind our audience what you guys have seen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what we've seen um, uh, are a couple things, but the most important thing is that there is just, telemedicine is here to stay. You know, we will see roughly $29 billion in telemedicine uh, spend this year. And we, which we expect to go over 100 billion by 2023. 20% of all visits this year will have been done by telemedicine, and a great number of patients will have had their first telemedicine visit. Prior to the pandemic, it was roughly 14% of patients, and then by the end of the year, we expect that to be over 50%, and those with chronic illnesses, over 70%. So, uh, we're seeing this adoption widespread. It's happening, um, you know, throughout the country. Uh, interestingly, surprisingly, uh, you know, th- physicians who are not the absolute youngest demographic are the ones who seem to be adopting it a little bit more than those doctors who are fresh from training. So, uh, really, just a widespread adoption. And obviously, there's there's a number of reasons behind that. The pandemic being the, far and away the most important.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Say those numbers again. Did you say over 50% of patients are now using telemedicine?
2: What I'm saying, I know I said that over 50% of patients um, will have had at least one telemedicine visit this year.
0: Okay, right, which is a big move forward. Do you think it sticks? Do you think it stays?
2: I do. I think that telemedicine is here to stay. Our telemedicine report, um, you know, saw that. was from the the survey respondents as well who agree. The genie's been out of the bottle, the cat's out of the bag, whatever analogy you want (laughs) to use. I think patients have found that it's a very... Um, effective way for them to be able to see their physicians and importantly it's for patients with chronic diseases it's a way for them to be able to stay in touch more frequently um, which is important for patients with things like diabetes etc it's not always convenient and frankly necessary to come into the office for every single visit this is not to say that you'll never have an in-person visit but the, the, the ability to do this is tremendously um, beneficial.
0: So, Peter, let me ask you, um, we were talking about telemedicine, and I was looking at the report that you did. You guys talked about this being, I think it was a, an over $38 billion market last year. This year, you said, was it $29 billion?
2: No, well, yeah, we said that over $29 billion in um, actual Telemedicine visits will have occurred by the end of 2020, and okay. that we expect that to be over 100 billion by 2023.
0: So it's growing rapidly. I do also wonder the use of technology and wearables. How are you guys thinking about how this all ultimately comes together?
2: Well, you know, the conversations that we're seeing on the platform really would indicate that you know health tech is is really having. Um, A tremendous uplift in terms of people finding the utility behind it. Um, In terms of wearables, you know, I think it's going to be a little while before there's going to be you know seamless integration of all of our devices into the same you know into into some magical uh, medical record that really gathers all of these things. And that's exactly what the conversation would show. Uh, But at the same time, um, I think that. We're seeing tremendous innovation. We're seeing um, a much wider adoption of these technologies. Um, and, you know, telemedicine is really just the first one. It's the one that helped, you know, that we needed to to, to get going in the beginning of the pandemic. But I think these other, other technologies that you're seeing are certainly uh, going to continue to evolve and add value.
0: I do also wonder how it adds value in terms of the outcomes for patients. I don't know if you have examples, if you guys have done research, but, you know, certainly I would assume a telemedicine visit is better than no visit, right? So I'm just curious how this is improving the outcome for patients.
2: So um, the study that we did wasn't wasn't uh, uh, designed to look at outcomes like that per se. There's other researchers who are doing that. But what we have um, seen is certainly a tremendous amount of, of uh, reported uh, anecdotal evidence, I guess, that you would call it that patients are very satisfied with this and that patients are being seen. And importantly, mm-hmm. you know, patients are are uh, doing these visits on their mobile devices, which uh, really can only help expand the number of people who can have access. And so I think the key thing about telemedicine is, is, is one of access, the ability for patients to see their providers, and as you alluded to earlier, the ability for patients who live in places that are perhaps un- uh, without certain specialties to be able to have access to those specialties. And so that's really the direction that we see in terms of uh, you know, improving outcomes.
0: Yeah, which is really, really important. Hey, just got a couple of minutes left here. I'd be remiss not to talk to you about some of these virus headlines. We talked about the U.S. exceeding 200,000 deaths. What are you you seeing in your practice?
2: Um, So here in San Francisco, um, we have been on the lower end of the curve. Uh, Things are continuing to get better. Um, You know, in our practice, we are um, still, you know, seeing the occasional patient mostly involved, mostly, excuse me, uh, instigated when uh, they... Uh, have been in a more of a group situation. So, you know, not necessarily following all the social distancing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, just the random sporadic um, things that happen because, you know, there still is a some baseline prevalence out there and you you have to maintain and and be vigilant. That's the the hardest thing about this pandemic is I think for people is having to maintain the vigilance against something that they can't see.
0: No, absolutely. What are your expectations in terms of a vaccine? You watch the headlines, you read the hot headlines, just like the rest of us. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what's your expectations here? I mean, you know, I think many seem to think that it's it's like a year from now where maybe it's the closest to normal or as we get more close to normal because of a vaccine, just quickly.
2: Yeah. Um, so my, my knowledge on
0: that probably is
2: as good as anybody else's um, in terms of what I read. I think that it's you know, we will have sort of candidate vaccines. Mm. Uh, But I think Dr. Fauci is is on the money when he says we've got to make those, we've got to, you know, build those up, we've got to then distribute those and get those get those people vaccinated. That is a a big logistical process. Um, So I think that we're going to be for the short and medium term with the continued uh, things that we're doing distancing and masking.
0: Yeah, it's so simple, but it works. And we've certainly seen it work really, really well so far, knock on wood in new york city um peter thank you so much dr peter alperin he's vice president doximity uh and of course as we said uh, has a practice in san francisco joining us on the phone from amazing city this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio let's uh
1: get into one of our favorite stories in the magazine by one of our favorite writers i love this guy's work he's such a good dude too (sighs) caleb melby financial investigations reporter for bloomberg joining us on the phone from brooklyn and this is a story it's about opportunity zones and we've been fascinated by them Caleb and his crew have done some incredible reporting of Virginia City's playbook for urban renewal, Move Out the Poor. So, Caleb, tell us what you found, because I got to say, I read this story and just think, man, this is tough.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, it, it is, um, it's, it's really thorny. And, yeah, we've been covering Opportunity Zones a lot. And in this particular case uh, in in Norfolk, Virginia, they've been looking at what to do with a series of uh, neighborhoods near their downtown that are uh, two-story public housing developments. And Opportunity Zones basically gave them the financing edge to finally uh, implement um, kind of like a raise and replace program where these uh, three um, predominantly black uh, and and very poor public housing communities um, will be destroyed and replaced with um, some mixed-income, mixed-use properties. Um, some of them will get to come back about one-third in the first phase of the people who live there now, but not everyone. Uh, it's it's it, The idea, according to the city, is to uh, decentralize poverty. Um, and the story was a great opportunity for us to look back at the history of programs like Opportunity Zones to see um, how they're used by cities time and again, and it turns out a lot of times it's it's, situations just like this
0: one. Yeah, and certainly important to tell as we try to understand. Jill, come on in. Jill Weber now with us um, after a little bit of technical difficulty, which we seem to be having <laughs> in our world. Jill, tell us about why this story just um, really resonated with you.
4: Well, so this is a, uh, our equality issue, and, you know, we have basically tried to look at, especially America, through uh, a lens of not just equality, but inequality. And this one, I think, has really stuck out to us for a while. And, and Caleb had raised his hands um, in the before times, if you remember those, <laughs> to, a, as an area of interest that he wanted to pursue. And, and it, it, what was amazing with it and why I think a story like this is so important is because even from the before times, this is one of those topics and one of these areas of interest that still resonates. And if anything, what we've all lived through for the past six months and counting now only amplifies some of these disparities. And I think that's brought to light in the story. Um, Caleb, the thing I was going to ask you about, you know, this Norfolk specifically, more opportunity zones than any other city in, in Virginia. And clearly it's gone, um, you know, maybe maybe slightly awry of, of how opportunity zones have been conceived. But like, who's the who ends up winning here? It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, so there there is
3: a developer the city is partnering with, uh, Brinshore Development. They specifically specialize in exactly a project like this, um, public to private slash public conversions. They made a name for themselves doing this with the Cabrini Green Housing Project in Chicago. So, like, in a very simple way, obviously, it's business for them. Uh, but the city of Norfolk would tell you that they're winning, right, That that as designed the city – does not work for them, and they are going to design it in a way that is better for them. And and the really painful thing about any project like this is, is like, then you have to ask yourself, well, who is the city? And are the people who are leaving, are they part of the city? Um, And that's something um, people in this community called St. Paul's are grappling with and um, what the politicians um, have been trying to grapple with in town as well.
1: Well, and and Caleb, I do think about the body of work that you guys have, have put together here. And, you know, we've had Opportunity Zone investors on this program, and we've seen it up close and personal here in New York City. I, I guess I come back to, and this is building on Joel's question, is this, you know, kind of people just kind of being pardon the pun, opportunistic about a law that kind of (laughs) allows them to sort of make money even though it's not in the spirit uh, of the law? Or is this bad law?
3: Well, that's a really great question. And you're right. There's there's investors here too. I neglected to mention those here on Bloomberg Radio. (laughs) Um, uh, um, Go figure. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Um, Look, opportunity zones, were specifically designed to have very few, basically non-existent guardrails because other programs, enterprise zones uh, and empowerment zones in the '90s had a lot of them, and investors and local leaders complained that like they couldn't make matches work because it was too restrictive. So opportunity zones were specifically incredibly expansive, uh, with with a generous capital gains tax break and no real particular rules about like what exactly. Uh, You you know, you you had to build with those investment dollars so long as it was going into these communities. So, yeah, our our reporting is focused a lot on, um, uh, uh, you know, some what may be outliers, right? We don't know because there's no actual public disclosure for the program. So we don't we don't we actually can't measure in any way whether. All of the opportunity zone money looks like Norfolk, um, or looks like say New York, which we reported on before, mm. or, or if or if there's some more like kind of locally minded uh, investing dollars going in as well, because there's there's no reports from from the Treasury Department one way or the other on that.
0: Yeah, transparency would be nice here.
4: <laughs> Caleb, I want to bring it, it back that. to the yeah, Caleb. I want to bring it back to the people that this affects, who are yeah. effectively being pushed out of. Um, their homes Um, from, from your reporting, what did you gather? What are their options and and where are they going to go? Right. So
3: basically um, the city is helping them get onto voucher programs, section eight and similar. Um, And uh, so they'll have to take those, even for those who have a ticket to come back to the new place, they're going to have to take those onto the private market to try to secure housing Um, In the interim, and uh, a lot of landlords, uh, even though it's against the law, are not um, excited about taking on Section 8 um, tenants and often avoid doing so. Um, It's also very easy to lose your voucher if you can't find a home in the right amount of time or if you fail to pay your utilities. And for a lot of people who maybe have been living in public housing for some time, those are those right. are new, new tasks that can be a challenge right. um, if you lose a job or similar.
0: It's a great story. And as Joel mentioned, it's the equality issue of the magazine. So highly recommend that you read it so you can get kind of all of um, the accounts that uh, Caleb and Joel talked about. It's really a, a great, great read. Hey, Caleb, thank you so much. Bloomberg News Financial Investigations reporter Caleb Melby along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser here. We have talked with our next guest before, covered his perspective on what kind of recovery we are having we are having, excuse me. And something he's credited for coining is a K-shaped recovery, where things are fine for some, not so for those, and those that are not faring so well often are the have-nots already in our world. He's back in today's Business Week Economics. Peter Atwater is adjunct professor of economics over at William & Mary. He's now also talking about the age of illusion and the rise of another age, which he will get into. He joins us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Hey, Peter, great to have you back with us. Thank
5: you, Carol. Great to be back with the two of you.
0: So talk to us a little bit. First, I've got to ask you, I don't know how closely you followed Jay Powell today, but I do wonder, I've just got to touch on, you know, your K-shape recovery, because as we talked with you before, it just so really describes this world that we're in. Um, Do you feel like it just becomes even increasingly more of a K-shape based on kind of what we're seeing right now?
5: I do. It's very frustrating, you know, the Mm. fiscal stimulus that we would need to help those who are at the low end of the economy is not forthcoming. And yet, we continue to see support from a top-down perspective, which, you know, monetary support enabling those who are already well off. And uh, I I find it a little disingenuous to hear policymakers who rely on top-down, you know, activity, like the the Fed, um, being um, sort of, Skirting around the issue of of inequity, because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you I I think of it almost as sort of an oxygen mask strategy where they put the the masks on the adult first, expecting that the mask will be passed to the children and then those further down. But in a world of maximizing shareholder value, a lot gets diverted and doesn't trickle down.
1: Mm. You know. Peter we have increasingly seen what feels like a very fragile market and if it's a recovery uh, that we're in it just uh, it feels like it, it could just it, it's gossamer you know it could just disappear at, at any moment why do you think that is and, and how do we adjust to it well I think that
5: um, you know I think some of it is people are so isolated and self-isolating, that nobody has a really good feel for what's happening out in the real world. So, you know, it enables people to fantasize about what, what might be. And I, and I think that level of uncertainty um, has people very, very tentative. I mean, the, the focus on real-time economic information, people are tracking things by the day. Um, and And I think that some of it, too, is that this has been – a cycle that has been filled with lots of banter and lots of, um, you know, what I what I refer to as illusion. Um, you know, the, it, there's been a lot of promotions. You know, we're going to blitz scale, make things enormous in size. Um, and that, that tends to lead to some fragility.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting, as you said, you know, I was thinking about, you know kind of real time economics and i was in the office yesterday and just walking around a little bit in new york and just amazed at the storefronts that have gone out of business and it made me think okay it's not just a business it's people behind that whether it was the owner of the business the people who work there and i'm talking about small and big economy i mean small and big companies so it just it makes me wonder about kind of where we're headed having said that i want to get into what you've been writing about as well and you talk about the age of illusion and you talk about the rise of the age of scrutiny. And scrutiny is spelled S-C-R-E-W-T-I-N-Y. Talk to me a little bit about this. Sure. So, as I said, this, this cycle
5: um, was born out of despair. And one of the things we know from history, if you go back and look, for example, in the mid-1800s, or you know, you'll see that that was the era of P.T. Barnum. Um, so not surprising, you know, we've had this the greatest showman movie and this whole culture of showmanship um in business, in finance, in politics. And I think a lot of it has to do with spectacle. And and one of the challenges of spectacle is trying to maintain momentum. You know, the two headed lady has to become a three headed lady, has to become a five, ten, you know, it's gotta be bigger and bolder. And you see that um, in terms of capital being deployed, you know it's not enough to raise a SPAC that's got 100 million; it's got to be 500 million, you know, it's got to be a billion. Everything is sort of supersized in this in this environment, and and it's hard to then fulfill that. Yeah. And so I I I think of this as being there's a lot of illusion out there um, of what might be, and. And this week we saw the, the danger when illusion is challenged and so easily challenged, as we saw with, with Nicola and the, yeah. the, the truck. Um, mm-hmm. you know, did, it, did it drive itself? Did it get pushed down the hill?
0: Hmm.
5: And, and suddenly, you see the skepticism. And illusion is binary. Either, either the magic works or it doesn't.
0: So, Well, so when you talk about this, so I think about our audience, you know, these are informed people in business, in the financial markets, you know, in the world at large, leaders, just got about a minute left here. Why is it that you think this is important that they're aware of this?
5: Because illusion other than on the magician's stage is deception. And so we have to be careful that... We don't end up in a situation where people really question: is this is this real?
0: Right,
1: right. No, I mean we. It, it feels like we've lost the handle uh, in some ways, and uh, we we've sort of in this topsy turvy world uh, lost our bearings. And yeah, uh, that's absolutely. great, great uh, insights there, Peter Atwater. Thank you so much. Great to catch up with you, adjunct professor of economics at William and Mary. Joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser here. We have talked with our next guest before, covered his perspective on what kind of recovery we are having we are having, excuse me. And something he's credited for coining is a K-shaped recovery, where things are fine for some, not so for those, and those that are not faring so well often are the have-nots already in our world. He's back in today's Business Week Economics. Peter Atwater is adjunct professor of economics over at William & Mary. He's now also talking about the age of illusion and the rise of another age, which he will get into. He joins us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Hey, Peter, great to have you back with us. Thank you,
5: Carol. Great to be back with the two of you.
0: So talk to us a little bit. First, I've got to ask you, I don't know how closely you followed Jay Powell today, but I do wonder, I've just got to touch on, you know, your K-shape recovery, because as we talked with you before, it just so really describes this world that we're in. Um, do you feel like it just becomes even increasingly more of a K-shape based on kind of what we're seeing right now?
5: I do. It's very frustrating, you know, the mm. fiscal stimulus that we would need to help those who are at the low end of the economy is not forthcoming. And yet, we continue to see support from a top-down perspective, which you know, monetary support enabling those who are already well off. And uh, I, I find it a little disingenuous to hear policymakers who rely on top-down, you know, activity like the like the Fed um, being um, sort of skirting around the issue of of inequity because. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, when you I I think of it almost as sort of an oxygen mask strategy where they put the the masks on the adult first, expecting that the mask will be passed to the children and then those further down. But in a world of maximizing shareholder value, a lot gets diverted and doesn't trickle down,
1: Mm. you know. Peter, we have increasingly seen what feels like a very fragile market, and if it's a recovery uh, that we're in, it uh, just—it feels like it it could just—it's gossamer, you know, it could just disappear at at any moment. Why do you think that is, and and how do we adjust to it?
5: Well, I think that um, you know, I think some of it is people are so. Isolated and self-isolating, that nobody has a really good feel for what's happening out in the real world. So, you know, it enables people to fantasize about what what might be, and I and I think that level of uncertainty um, has people very very tentative. I mean, the, the focus on real-time economic information, people are tracking things by the day, um, and and I think that some of it too is that this has been. A cycle that has been filled with lots of banter and lots of, um, you know, what I what I refer to as illusion. Um, you know, the, it, there's been a lot of promotion. You know, we're going to blitz scale, make things enormous in size, um, and that that tends to lead to some fragility.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting as you said. You know, I was thinking about you know, kind of real-time economics. And I was in the office yesterday and just walking around a little bit in New York and just amazed at the storefronts that have gone out of business, and it made me think, okay, it's not just a business, it's people behind that, whether it was the owner of the business, the people who work there, and I'm talking about small and big economy, I mean, small and big companies, so it just, it makes me wonder about kind of where we're headed. Having said that, I want to get into what you've been writing about as well, and you talk about the age of illusion, and you talk about the rise of the age of scrutiny, and scrutiny is spelled s C R E W T I N Y. Talk to me a little bit about this. Sure. So, as I said, this this cycle um, was born
5: out of despair, and one of the things we know from history, if you go back and look, for example, in the mid eighteen hundreds, or you know, you'll see that that was the era of P. T. Barnum. Um, so, not surprising, you know, we've had this the greatest showman movie and this whole culture of showmanship. Um, in business, in finance, in politics. And I think a lot of it has to do with spectacle. And and one of the challenges of spectacle is trying to maintain momentum. You know, the two-headed lady has to become a three-headed lady, has to become a five, ten. You know, it's got to be bigger and bolder. And you see that. Um, in terms of capital being deployed, you know, it's not enough to raise a SPAC that's got hundred million. It's got to be five hundred million. You know, it's got to be a billion. Everything is sort of supersized in this in this environment, and and it's hard to then fulfill that. Yeah. And so I I I think of this as being there's a lot of illusion out there um, of what might be, and and this week we saw. The, the danger when illusion is challenged and so easily challenged as we saw with with Nicola and the, yeah. the the truck um, mm-hmm. you know did it did it drive itself did it get pushed down the hill hmm. and and suddenly you see the skepticism and illusion is binary either either the magic works or it doesn't
0: and so Well, so when you talk about this, so I think about our audience, you know, these are informed people in business, in the financial markets, you know, in the world at large, leaders, just got about a minute left here. Why is it that you think this is important that they're aware of this?
5: Because
0: illusion
5: other than on the magician's stage is deception. And so we have to be careful that... You, we don't end up in a situation where people really question, is this, is this real?
1: Right. Right. No, I mean, we've, it, it feels like we've lost the handle uh, in some ways, and uh, we, we've sort of, in this topsy-turvy world, uh, lost our bearings, and yeah, uh, that's absolutely. great, great uh, insights there. Peter Atwater, thank you so much. Great to catch up with you, Adjunct Professor of Economics at William & Mary. Join us on the phone from Pennsylvania.
5: I'm driving in my car i turn on
6: the radio hey, How
1: about you let me drive?
6: Oh, no, 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 no Who's
1: gonna drive
6: you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving Drive on Excuse me, I want to drive
4: Just drive, baby It's the question that drives us
0: This is The
1: Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for The Drive to the Close. Checking in with an old pal of ours, Lincoln Ellis, Senior Investment Strategist for Northern Trust Global Family Office Practice. He's out in Chicago, he and his team looking after more than $100 billion in assets. Family offices, Lincoln, we love talking about them. What has all of this been like? investing into this uh, pandemic and this really topsy-turvy market.
6: Jason Carroll, good to be back with you. Um, Yeah, it's been a a wild ride. I mean, as you guys know, the luxury that family offices tend to have, which is different from both fund managers and retail investors, is a, a much longer time horizon. And so we've sort of broken out the way investors thought about the crisis and have been working their way through the pandemic, in two sections, right, the March-April time frame when people were interested very much in building uh, cash and cash-like positions, and then the sort of uh, beginning of April, May, and June time frame when they were quite quick to re-risk portfolios uh, and to take advantage of some of the significant price dislocations that we saw. Now it's a bit of the sorting out, um, I found Dave Wilson's section uh, just before ours here An interesting one, because it's a question that a lot of families are thinking about, particularly because of the large positions that they hold in passive or index-like strategies, sort of what is under the hood and what they own, and what are some of the unintended consequences or risks that they hold on their balance sheet. But uh, a very interesting environment and a place where family offices have been uh, quite active in thinking about what the future looks like.
0: All right. I do want to hear more about that. But I do first want to hear about Chicago and how the world is for you personally and kind of your colleagues between virus concerns. Um, I'm just curious, what's it like?
6: Yeah, I mean, Chicago is very similar, I would say, to the other large cities, both of which uh, New York and L.A., which I've, 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 I've been in during the pandemic. Um, you know, as you were suggesting earlier in the hour, Carol, uh, sad to see so many storefronts Uh, closed, one in six restaurants likely to disappear, Uh, foot traffic, modest at best. Um, We were going through downtown on Michigan Avenue on Saturday uh, and noticed that we had probably the best foot traffic we had seen since the pandemic. It was a beautiful Saturday here in Chicago, mid-70s, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, And that kind of activity uh, you see supportive in the economic numbers uh, across the board, modest, but, you know, directionally traveling in the right direction.
1: And so as you think about, you know, some of those small businesses are family owned and some of them, you know, grow into the sorts of things that generate the kind of wealth uh, that you are helping manage, but often people are still running their businesses. I do think about how they think about dis not disposing but sort of moving assets around maybe selling a piece of the family business i I would imagine you have some window into that as well so what are the sorts of things that are happening when it comes to liquidity maybe in these times when valuations candidly in some areas as you well know are still pretty high
6: yeah absolutely so we're actually in the process of wrapping up um one of our largest benchmark studies that will be released in november But I can share with you sort of directionally some of the data that uh, answers or begins to scratch at the surface of what you suggested, Jason. You know, it is the case, and you see this uh, not just in our data but across the broader cohort, that about 50% of family offices still have in some way, shape, or form a tie to or an investment in or an ownership around Uh, that operating company. And what is interesting is when you start to think uh, about or ask those uh, cohorts about things like global growth or things that they're optimistic or pessimistic about, the difference between business owners and non-business owners is actually quite stark. For instance, in the pessimistic category, business owners are by 10 points Uh, a little bit more pessimistic than Mm. non-business owners. And that would be reflective of the kind of window that they have into, as you suggested, uh, the real economy. And so when you think about other types of issues, growth, uh, domestic political uncertainty, geopolitical uncertainty, again, you're talking about 10-point spreads that seem to suggest – as my good friend Peter Atwater was talking about at the earlier part of the hour, that there is some disparity between what we experience as market-based investors and what's happening in the real economy.
0: Some disparity. Come on, Lincoln. A lot of disparity. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big disparity.
6: And I think it's worth noting that one of the things that we have noted from a trend perspective, uh, and, yes, I have been listening the entire hour. When I thought about the coffee shop uh, vignette earlier in the hour, it does remind me that what we have seen in terms of family offices turning to their communities and being supportive of of local businesses um, has been pretty uh, amazing. And so when we think about the fact that 80 percent plus have various kinds of family philanthropic foundations, et cetera, um, they have been uh, very active in terms of trying to make sure that these staples of their communities yeah. uh, are, are, are very much in place and, and and very much aware, as you said, Carol, about those disparities that are that are that are out
1: there. Do you feel Lincoln only got about a minute left here? Do you, as you talk to these families, are they kind of? battening down the hatches around the election and worries about a second wave and all of that. Like, what's the mood as you talk to them?
6: I mean, look, market uncertainty for anybody, a retail investor, a family office, a corporation is is, is super challenging. And this uh, particular cycle is going to be one of the most. Uh, but uh as the data suggests you know we go through these periods of volatility and then things sort of continue to travel in the direction in which they've been headed our sense is that that's going to continue to be the case and so family offices have been very active in terms of trying to understand what's happening in the private debt space the private equity neighborhood they've been looking again Uh, as they often have adventure capital with a, a sharp eye into technology.
1: All right really good to catch up with you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, Stay well there in Chicago. Best to your family. Lincoln Ellis, Senior Investment Strategist for Northern Trust Global Family Office Practice. He and his team looking after about $100 billion in assets. Looking forward to seeing more details of that survey coming up in November because, listen, this is a massively important part of the investment market. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.